Hi, I'm Keith Law, and welcome to episode 19 of the Keith Law Show. In theory, this is our last uh, pre-preseason podcast. It's possible that the next time we do this, that we will actually have had players reporting to camps and maybe something on field to talk about. We'll see. I remain cautiously pessimistic. I wouldn't even say I'm optimistic, but looks like they're going to try, and I think that's probably a good thing in the end. Uh, I have a great guest today, Dr. Akila Carter-Francique of San Jose State University. She works in the Department of African-American Studies, also serves as the Executive Director for the Institute for the Study of Sports, Society, and Social Change at San Jose State. Uh, it's a great conversation. We talk a lot about race and other underrepresented minority groups and how to get them more involved in uh, amateur sports and keep them within sports to transition into coaching or executive ranks. Uh, before then, just I did have a column last week uh, when I went up on June 25th for subscribers to The Athletic, how teams are working on player development during the pandemic. I spoke to a number of player development executives from different teams and asked them what sorts of things they had been doing so far with players and what they might do with players who aren't going to play. And now that we have the 60-player 60 60 pools, uh, we have the names of those players, many organizations chose not to bring Top prospects, for example, the Orioles did not bring Adley Rutschman, who was the first overall pick last year. He was a college catcher out of Oregon State. Nor did they bring either of their two top top two pitching prospects, lefty D.L. Hall, right-hander Grayson Rodriguez, who finished last year in high A and low A, respectively. I thought all three of those players would be included on the Orioles roster just to get them some development time, but instead they chose to go a different direction. That's fine. I'm not saying it's right or wrong necessarily, but it does mean we're going to have a lot of pretty good prospects who have nowhere to play this year. And that was really the subject of my article. I was asking out of my own curiosity. So what do you do? What are you going to do with these players? And what sorts of messages are you sending them knowing that they may not get a chance to play at all this year? If you're enjoying this podcast, uh, feel free to subscribe. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play. Uh, if you do like it and the site you use allows you to leave a review, we would certainly appreciate a, a positive review and a five-star rating. And uh, please feel free to share any of these episodes with friends. I have been trying. This is not an accident. I've definitely been trying to get more into, I'd say, the social commentary aspects of baseball because that's just the moment we're in right now. And I think it's a good time to talk about potential change and how baseball and sport as a whole can respond to what I think, I hope at least is a pretty significant moment and a, and a real sea change in the way that we're looking at structural racism across all aspects of society. My guest this week is Dr. Akila Carter-Francique. She's an associate professor at San Jose State University in the Department of African-American Studies. And she also serves as the executive director for the Institute for the Study of Sport, Society, and Social Change, which is also at San Jose State. She has also served as the president of the North American Society for the Sociology of Sport and has co-edited multiple volumes on black athletic experiences in the United States, particularly at the university level. So Dr. Carter-Francique, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. It's such a pleasure to be here and be able to talk. <laughs> so <laughs> I'll start by asking you to introduce yourself a little bit more, especially describe the focus of your research before we delve into some of the specific topics that you've studied. Yes, um, prior to being appointed the executive director for the Institute, um, I was working at um, Prairie View a and University and has been at another um, university as well. But my, my scholarship uh, primarily focused on the experiences of black athletes at the collegiate level. 
um, even more specifically looking at black female athlete um, experiences. And uh, that was really all came out of my own lived experience as a student athlete at the University of Houston um, as a track and field athlete. Uh, and so as I got into my doctoral studies, one of the things is in, in, in our quest to look for our, our dissertation topic, uh, it was one of, I'm reading all of these stories about the experiences of black athletes and the challenges they faced historically. But what I did not see was me. There were, you know, a few out there, but not enough to where I really felt that, um, that voice, that representation was understood, um, to in many ways sort of understand myself. Um, and so I delved into that and that became my, my dissertation focus. And then out of that, just experiences of, of athletes, of female athletes, of, of male athletes, of athletes of color, um, everywhere from, again, individual representation, um, what that meant to their identity development, what that meant to their educational development, what that meant to their, um, their social development and then, you know, life after sport, you know, and what all of those things sort of meant within the sport context, particularly at the college level, when we talk about identity formation, um, you know, what those experiences meant to those young people. And um, what I found for that was, was experiences of racism, experiences of sexism, um, also experiences of friendship, um, experiences of, of hope, um, experiences of aspirations to be more than an athlete. Uh, and uh, those things really got me inspired to delve back into some of those stories, but also even sort of springboard off of those stories to to understand other social nuances and social interactions um, and how maybe institutions played a role or coaches played a role or uh, as faculty or professors, how they played a role in shaping these young people's lives. Now, did you identify specific obstacles for black young black athletes playing sports, I guess, particularly at the university level, since that's a big focus? Although since I come from the baseball world, we're concerned with black athletes getting into our sport basically at any mm -hmm. level, even younger than that. What, what are some of those major obstacles that, that people should be aware of in the sports industry? Well, I think um, from from a college level perspective, some of those obstacles I think getting into are their participation at the youth level. You know, when we look at the youth level and even go to some of the institutes that do those report, Aston Institute is one of those in particular, and they've got a report that really hones in on, you know, ages six through 12. And if we look at it by sex, by race, by social economic status, we're going to find that female participation rates are about seven percentage points less than men at those ages between six and 12. You know, black children are about 5% um, lower than white children in their participation. And then from a socioeconomic status, um, those at the low end of 25,000 annual income have the lowest participation. So at the end of the day, we begin to understand that sport costs money. You know, if youth choose to participate outside of K-12 schools or community recreation spaces, and those spaces, um, those spaces often require uh, additional dollars when we leave that K-12 or, you know, recreation space. But those spaces also create exposure, opportunity, experiential skill sets that they are uh, developing such that they can play at the next level. And so if... We have, you know, our black youth don't have um, are in family situations that don't have the income to be able to play club ball, um, you know, 
whether it be basketball or baseball, whether it be to participate in these other, um, uh, you know, youth organizations. I, again, I, I ran club track and field, if you will. Um, you've got to travel. You've got to get equipment. Um, you've got to stay in hotels. We've got uh, when we talk about uh, fees to participate, you know, all of those things cost money. And so if you're not participating at, at those club levels quite often, um, you're not being seen. Um, and so that becomes sort of an initial barrier into getting to the college level because most of our college um, coaches, they do recruit high school, they do recruit state championships, but a lot of them go to these club settings, um, these club uh, national competitions to see the rising talent. Um, in one spot and really kind of get a glimpse as to what is to come. Um, and so those become sort of the, the initial hurdles is what I feel is, the, again, that exposure. But they're rooted in, in race. They're rooted in gender. They're rooted in socioeconomic status. That, that sounds incredibly familiar to me just coming from just the baseball perspective where mm-hmm. – you know, one where there's a huge pay to play industry of these yes. club teams or travel teams. And I think that absolutely narrows opportunities for any underrepresented group, even if it's strictly because of socioeconomic status, although I think there's more to it than that. But mm-hmm. also, so Major League Baseball's response in general to the declining participation of black youth baseball players has been build more fields. And it sounds to me like <laughs> that is an it's not unhelpful, but it is woefully incomplete as a solution. So what other things do, would you advise? Major League Baseball calls you today and says, what do we do? What do we do to increase black youth participation in baseball? What else do you tell them besides, hey, building fields is nice, but that's not going to solve the problem on its own? Well, I think part of it, again, it is, like you said, the pay to play. But a lot of this is also rooted in, you know, notions of race and racism um, and uh, the notion of myths and stereotypes perpetuated about the black athlete and their ability to be in thinking positions, if you will, their athleticism or inherent athleticism and how those things begin to sort of play a role to um to representing those images to young black youth. So if you don't see yourself represented or if you only see yourself represented in negative ways, the likelihood that you want to go into that space and be a part of it um, begins to decrease greatly. Uh, And so I think that becomes part of the storyline that we have to uh, really consider, um, you know, building a field is great, but if you're not seeing your heroes like a LeBron James, <laughs> you know, um, in those, the limelight, if you will, and Nike commercials about them, then you don't really see yourself in that space. And at one time we did have, again, that influx. I think of the Negro Leagues. I mm-hmm. think of um, what Rube Foster created, what, you know, Effa Manley and her um, husband, you know, fielding those teams um, and the great history that came from the Negro Leagues. And it's near and dear to me, even with that, because my grandparents are from Kansas City, Missouri. And so I the Negro League Museum is actually housed there. So I oftentimes frequent that space and learned about um, those great players, such as a Satchel Page. You know, I learned about what Jackie Robinson was birthed out of. Um, and But those stories get lost. And so what we know about our participation in baseball may just be, in some ways, the mythical Jackie Robinson, but don't necessarily see, you know, those players today. And so I think representation is a great thing. It's, it's, it's a media image that needs to take place. It's highlighting those Black athletes that are currently playing, um, instituting program, too, 
at the youth level. Again, I talk about this notion of exposure. If you don't see yourself or there are not programs, if you will, that we can afford to go and participate, practice this skill set and see, oh, I do have some talent in this space. And it looks like there's room for me to be a part of it. I can see myself in this space. You're not likely going to invest any energies into continuing participation, continuing to learn the skill set, continuing wanting to become involved in programs or club teams that would get you to the next level, um, then that's not going to happen. So I think we have to start with, with early exposure, access, um, and encouraging those young players. But again, as we move on, move up, is to continue to sort of foster that development. Um, you know, much like we see, you know, where those athletes go before they get into the Major League Baseball, those farm teams, you know, continuing to foster that engagement um, as we go through that. And it may be, like I said, sponsoring some community programs um, such that we have children that are exposed to these opportunities. Um, and, and again, also, you know, the last thing I'll say is just I'm all about education is is educating them on their history. You know, um, I think of, again, those black male players, but even for the women's side, and I know we're focusing on, on baseball, but because I, I am who I am, when we <laughs> think about the women's side of things, um, you know, broadly uh, speaking, you think of uh, a league of their own, the Rockford Peaches, that story is, is few and far between. But even what is those, those individuals that live at the intersection when we talk about um, when we talk about women, when we talk about people of color or black people, I think of a Tony Stone. I think of a Connie Morgan. I think of a Mamie Peanut Johnson that played in the Negro Leagues, that were women that played, you know, black women that played in the Negro Leagues and participated and were outstanding players. Um, and so I think there's a level of education there, giving back to your youth and helping them understand you were a part of the story. And, you know, we want to have that continued legacy there, much like they know of the NBA, you know, much like we see um, in football uh, with those those different um, programs, representation, museums, uh, even that are sort of dedicated to that um, and, and how those players even go out to those particular club programs. They may be at AAU or McDonald's, you know, all-star game. Mm -hmm. um, just to have that continued engagement, continued storyline, continued representation in those spaces, because we're at a, I think, a, a very interesting time, particularly with COVID, that everything is through video, <laughs> it's right. through social media. Um, and so that media representation, that visual representation mean a lot these days, um, I, I believe, to our young people. You mentioned that one of your previous stops was at Prairie View A&M, which is one of the nation's historically black colleges and universities. And yes. when you and I spoke a little bit before this uh, before this call, uh, you had mentioned too that there's even issues with uh, with the HBCUs, one with just external perceptions of those schools affecting mm -hmm. uh, black students and black student athletes' willingness to go to those schools, and also where because white primarily white universities have pillaged black athletes from those schools that suddenly they don't have, they're not there. Many of their sports teams now, they can't fill them with black athletes. So what is your, I guess maybe ideally going forward, where would you like to see the HBCUs in this development process, which whether it's baseball or any other sport where they're seeing declining representation? 
Well, I think it, it goes to, you know, what you were talking about and what can sort of Major League Baseball do. You know, I think it would be a great opportunity for investment of Major League Baseball to invest in these HBCUs um, and and their programs and development. I mean, as we know, um, just, just all around, there's only, uh, especially at D1 schools, only like 11.7 scholarships that they can, um, mm-hmm. you know, divvy up between, you know, a, a team, a, a team of 25 or more, you know, 25, I think to 27 players. And so that becomes really difficult when you think about pathways into um, baseball and opportunities to participate at the college level. Because again, we see this persistence of, uh, of basketball and even football, even more so um, being those ideal arenas. But again, football can field um, so many more players. So, you know, I don't think baseball, again, is sort of um, seen as a pathway to go into, again, lack of representation. But I think that, uh, you know, our HBCUs have a, a great role. They have a great heritage. They have a great history and 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 do so much to build up um, those students that attend those institutions holistically. Just to follow up on that too, that you mentioned again when we spoke last week too about the per- external perception of HBCUs. And oh yes, we, yes, yes. I, I would love to hear your thoughts on that, whether it's on the athletic yes. side or or the educational side. Well, I think um, again when those those HBCUs started, my, my parents went to an HBCU, Lincoln University in Missouri. I've mm-hmm. worked at one as well, um, but the the essential perception is that they were um, separate. They were separate. They were secondary. They were less than. Um, and, you know, from a historic perspective, we saw a number of, you know, white individuals, philanthropists that created some of these institutions. Some of these institutions were founded by, by black, um, you know, millionaires and, and, and those that, and educators that invested in as well. Um, but the perception was that they were secondary. I even think of the history of Prairie View. And when I, when I, when I onboarded to the institution and began to little, learn a little bit more, I learned that, you know, Prairie View A&M University is a part of Texas A&M University. And the, the first, um, quote unquote president of Prairie View was not called president, but yet a principal. So if we think about that from an educational perspective, a principal we see at the K-12 level as uh, elementary, you know, middle right. school, high school. So not even to be given that name designation already places uh, an inferior notion of HBCUs. And so they have this large uh, perception of being, again, inferior institutions, so much so that you know, the broader white society, if you will, sees them as such, but it almost became one where many blacks, you know, sort of present day, put it in that same light of their secondary. They are not the Texas A&Ms. They're not the University of Texas. Um, and they don't have the same academic rigor as our institutions. Um, but as we're learning and things are unfolding, even now, so, you know, we've been talking about it for for decades, but even in this present time of racial unrest, we're learning, you know, many of these institutions were um, promised money and funding from predominantly white institutions, such as like a Texas A&M to a Prairie View, but that money was never collected from HBCUs to begin to grow and thrive. And so, um, you know, in many senses, it's a, a time of reparations um, needing to happen, but more investment into our HBCUs 
because again, HBCUs um, are institutions that were historically created for um, African-Americans, but they're institutions that have historically welcomed all people of, of all races, of, of all genders, and educating them, again, holistically. So not just to be academically inclined, but to also um, understand who they are as a person, to develop their, their social skills, to develop their um, ability to give back to the community, um, and then again, when we think about athletics, they have produced some of the most outstanding, outstanding athletes historically. Um, and I go, I, I go to and speak about, um, um, in particular, uh, Tennessee State University and the Tennessee Tiger Bells, let, you know, Wilma Rudolph and, mm -hmm. um, all that she accomplished in the Olympic Games and what Ed Temple, you know, the coach in that time, I mean, really, um, created, um, a developmental opportunity and a developmental um, coaching practice that enrich those those women, those young women to be more than athletes, to continue to give back, to be um, advocates and activists, you know, for their community and for equity. Um, but again, these places have, have just been a staple to me in the U.S. fabric and are ones that need to be elevated to a higher plane um, uh, than they are currently, you know, that they currently have. Now, I know a lot of your research has also looked at coaching, uh, particularly the pathway that is particularly open for white athletes, white male athletes, to go from playing sports into coaching, regardless mm -hmm. of what level. Yeah. You've written, but you've written about the experiences of the obstacles that black coaches and especially black women coaches or would be coaches face that these athletes face as they try to transition into coaching. What are some of those obstacles? And, and as I asked about getting increasing youth participation, what can leagues or universities do to try to remove those obstacles to ensure that more of these athletes remain in their chosen sport, take their knowledge and become coaches? Um, well, one of my, my most recent pieces that I, I highlighted this notion, um, and this was focusing on black female athletes in particular, was the importance of inclusive excellence. Um, and inclusive excellence is, is something that came out of the American, I'm sorry, the Association for, uh, of American Colleges and Universities. And it speaks to this broader concept of diversity or diversity and inclusion. And that, um, with that, that these institutions need to um, really think of diversity as one as providing opportunities for access. Um, and in providing those opportunities for access, uh, that they then provide uh, opportunities for um, equity or create policies that promote equity and then um, work to promote this notion of inclusion. And so, um, Thinking about that, you know, these are the pathways that, that we, you know, really need to, to create for our black student athletes. And so I say all that to say that, you know, when I think of black female athletes, you know, one of the things they, they speak about, uh, as far as pathways to coaching, we're going to hire those individuals that are best prepared. Um, and, you know, it's going to include academic acumen. Um, it's going to include, you know, an understanding of, of the sport. Um, and just the the ability to, you know, make um, the program or bring the program to a level of, you know, a level of esteem, if you will. Um, and so with that said, this notion of 
this inclusive excellence does that, does just that. It's about everybody being on the same page to promote in this notion of diversity. So access being recruitment, um, you know, uh, policies that create those equitable opportunities promotes this notion of development and promotion. So while you're in that space, that you're not only developing them, but you're developing young people to be promoted um, in those spaces. And then inclusion, again, it cultivates, ultimately cultivates this climate of belonging or a sense of belonging. And that equates to me to retention, retention of black players, retention of black coaches, staff, and even C-suite personnel, if we begin to think about, you know, major league spaces. Um, but this is something that has to be embraced in a changing culture by everybody to so more than just say, hey, I recruited you or I hired this person. But you're creating uh, an organizational climate, an organizational culture that values what that individual brings. Again, not having this colorblind mentality, but actually being, color, you know, culturally competent and understanding the value that that individual brings. So back to what I talked about before with this notion of, you know, increasing participation of our black youth um, and the role of the media, you know, having these people at the table can give voice to say, well, have we thought about this particular community? Have we um, thought about this particular individual? They're doing some great things. Um, but we have not considered them yet. And, you know, why is that? Let's, let's look at this particular application, this, um, black male, this black female, um, and consider them for this particular role because they've been doing some of the same work in this space. But what if we bring them into this environment? And so it's having people at the table that can serve as representation to speak up, champion, even sponsor others, um, and bring them into the fold and create an opportunity within an organization that that organization can can grow and thrive as well. So I think that you, you may have even anticipated a little bit of my last question here, but I do want to touch on the fact that in Major League Baseball in particular, there are extremely few women in decision-making roles, particularly if we exclude public relations or communications, then there are, I shouldn't say none, because there are a few, but there are very, very few. They're woefully underrepresented, probably even more underrepresented than are uh, black men in those mm -hmm. roles. And so when you and I talked a little bit last week, you talked potentially about how stereotypes might affect that. You've talked mm -hmm. here about rep how representation might affect that. Maybe it's a, maybe the answer is it's a little bit of everything. But when you look at a male-dominated sport that I think has been openly hostile to bringing women into decision-making roles and is only now – just sort of opened a crack in the door. What kinds of things would you counsel in terms of getting women, creating opportunities for women? And, and also, you know, my thought was, if I were a woman, it's hard for me to imagine, but if I were a woman in this <laughs> industry, you know, to put myself in the shoes of such a, I am the overrepresented group, a very, very underrepresented group. I, it's hard for me to put myself in their shoes, but I would think if they're more aware maybe of each other and better connected with each other to realize that they're, there are a few of them, but maybe they're not so alone. They're alone in their organization, maybe not alone in their industry. I don't know if that, if you've looked at how that might help. So what, what general tips would you, again, give to any league that says, no, we need to get more women, not just into the organizations, but find them in C-suites or in other director level positions that actually have some authority? Uh, you know, I, the, the time for this notion of diversity, inclusion, is is now. I mean, it's been mm -hmm. here for a long time. So again, we've been talking about this for decades. Um, 
as particularly as scholars, we've been talking about it. Um, but much of what, you know, women face in these professional sport teams is what we as academics, you know, even face in, in these times. But I think it takes um, a, an act of courage <laughs> and in many sense of of an executive saying we're going to, you know, intentionally look for. And these young people, uh, young women, even if we will, we're going to identify those individuals and create opportunities um, for to train them up, you know, and bring them into the fold. Um, these women and again, many of them are even former athletes, have a great understanding of the sport, first and foremost, but they also have a great understanding of the business. And I think it's it's time to introduce them to these spaces. Um, they know who they are, you know, same thing. Like we know who we are. We have our own networks. We're going to a number of these workshops. We're trying to be in those spaces and places, but yet still, you know, submitting applications and getting overlooked. Um, because this notion, um, particularly when we're talking about black women and, you know, this notions of myths and stereotypes run so rampant and they permeate the industry that we get shut down before we even have an opportunity to be seen because the the stereotypes that are out there uh, are of you know if if she is so headstrong so she's she's an angry black woman you know mm. um and you know or is that notion that she becomes over sexualized in those spaces so assumptions brought in one way or the other no matter how we look how we dress how we wear our hair you know, their assumptions that came come sort of with that package immediately as she walks through the door. So it's not only, oh, it's her as a black woman or a black individual or her as a woman. Those things begin to conflate and stereotypes come with that. Again, angry, um, aggressive, emasculating um, are all of those stereotypes. If she just, you know, makes the same statement that perhaps a white male makes. You know, it, it the the assumption behind it, the rhetoric that often comes from it is has been perpetuated historically. And it's time to start, you know, breaking some of those things, those barriers down um, to um, no longer be a stand, you know, uh, to stand by or be a bystander to many of these operations taking place. And again, not just mentor an individual, but serve as a champion for them and say, she has done great work. I've seen great things. Um, I think of a, uh, in, in college basketball, I think of Don Staley and the great work that she's done, you know, mm -hmm. um, as athlete, Olympian, <laughs> national right. champion to now hall of famer. I think of, um, Carla Williams, you know, athletic director, um, at Virginia. Um, I actually met her at the University of Georgia when I was working on my doctorate, um, because I saw her and I sort of beeline to her, like, how can I be like you? Um, but she was the only one I knew. Unfortunately, she was at my institution, but she had a long road ahead of her. She was a former student athlete as well. She's worked in several different places as coach. She served as a senior women's administrator at Georgia for I don't know how many years. Um, mm -hmm. And then finally, you know, um, you know, into that that role as an athletic director. It takes tenacity. It takes, you know, people around you keep continuing to encourage you. But she essentially was on a 20 year interview <laughs> of having to prove who she was you know, to get into that space. And we have other women that are, again, are doing great things, but because we don't fit the prototype of white male, 
and fall into these spaces where you, you in essence, have this notion of homologous reproduction. You know, I'm going to hire people that look like me because I'm comfortable with people that look like me. Um, Then you get in these cycles of this is the same person, just a different suit. (laughs) Right. Uh, And so, you know, I think it's time. Again, women have have been around in the sport world um, in many different ways from again athletes to business women again i spoke of effa manley um to coaches um to those in the media um to those that are writers to those that are academics that are teaching teaching these young men (laughs) Mm -hmm. uh, that um they're going through our classes and then they're becoming you know ceos and directors of you know operations and um head coaches and they're coming through our particular courses. Um, and so I, I just find it kind of interesting, you know, you're learning from us, uh, but won't hire us. So um, I think that's something that, you know, the MLB and those, those administrators, those CC, C-suite individuals, um, owners and individuals in positions of power should consider. And again, re-examining hiring practices re-examining um, qualifications, um, enacting in many ways um, uh, a Rooney rule, if you will, if we sort of pull mm-hmm. from NFL to make sure that we have a diverse pool, that we are also creating opportunities for education and training to come through the MLB. Um, and I know the MLB does have a diversity and inclusion program, but it again, needs to be more than, than window dressing. It needs to have an educational component. It has a, a training component where we are providing opportunities and space to usher through a, a, a diverse range of individuals um, to come through the program, the organization, uh, the respective teams, to work with those athletes um, and to work amongst the media and all those that help the MLB be what it is. But I think, again, it can be so much, so much greater. And that creates a great visual then for our young people. Like I said, our our five-year-olds, our Mm 10-year-olds to see (laughs) themselves one day in those positions. My guest today has been Dr. Akila Carter-Francique, who's an associate professor at San Jose State University in the Department of African-American Studies. She's also the executive director for the Institute for the Study of Sport, Society, and Social Change, also at San Jose State. Dr. Carter-Francique, thank you so much for the time. Thank you. That's all for the show this week. Thank you so much for listening. Once again, I'd like to thank everyone who's purchased my new book, The Inside Game. A number of you responded that you got it for your fathers for Father's Day or that you received it as a gift for Father's Day. Got some really nice comments from folks, especially on Twitter, where I'm at Keith Law. I really appreciate all of that. You can still find the book at bookshop.org. A lot of independent bookstores are opening one way or another for curbside service or actually letting you in this store. Uh, Please support your local independent bookstores. They've really taken a hit during the economic shutdown this year. Who knows? There may be another shutdown coming soon in some parts of the country. So supporting local stores of all sorts, and obviously I'm a big fan of local bookstores, is one way you can do some good with your money in this economy. Thank you so much for listening. Stay safe.